Welcome to Abundant Life Church. Uh, to those who are with me and those who are watching or listening online or via podcast, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor, and it's great to be with you guys. We are continuing in a series we've been in uh, for about three weeks now, going through the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to get those out. And uh, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. Now, Philippians is in the New Testament. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, maybe you've got a bookmark there. But if you've got a physical Bible with you that you brought today, go ahead and get that out. And if you've got a Bible app on a phone, get that out as well. We'd love for you to read this for yourself. And then uh, we've got our journals and we're going to be in week three. And we encourage you, take a journal, bring it back with you, write notes in it. Uh, let this be a tool for you in your own uh, study with God and with your life group as you go deeper with us. I also want to begin by saying thanks to our guest speaker last week, a guy named Matt. Uh, if you were here, he did a great job and uh, just heard a number of uh, great feedback from, from you guys. And so I want to say thank you to him. And uh, I'm excited to be back with you. I've uh, spent the last 10 days or so uh, in Israel and Palestine and just got back and still a little bit jet lagged. So uh, I'm trying to get back on schedule. And, and I, I love uh, going to this trip. I've been there three times now. And, and it's not just walking where Jesus walked. There's certain, certainly a historical element to it. But the trip that we're working on, and we're going to create a, a trip for, for us as a, as a church as well, is figuring out where would Jesus walk today? Now, if you know, the Holy Land is, is considered one of the, the most conflict-ridden places in the world today. And, and so we're going there. We're learning how to be peacemakers, learning how to listen, learning how to, to listen to different uh, narratives and competing stories and, and figuring out how do we just let Jesus emerge through the midst of this. And, and so it was a great trip, and we're working on that. And uh, we'll, we'll be providing more details for you guys in the months to come of, of what we're working on. But whenever I travel, it gives me a chance to hit reset on perspective, you know, and to see things. And, and I, I think thoughts in different ways. And I don't know if you travel for work or you travel often, but whenever I travel, I just have interesting thoughts. For example, uh, do you know when you travel, especially if you travel for a long time, you have to get your bag within a weight limit? You know the weight limit? 50 pounds, right? It's the magic number. And, and so, you know, you're, you know, I got my little scale and you're, you know, making decisions, you know, like how much underwear do I really need? And you're trying to figure out, you know, you've got to get it within 50 pounds. And, and sometimes if you don't do the math right, you end up in the, and you're, you're at the counter, people are waiting behind you and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you're three pounds over. And you got to make some tough decisions there in that moment, right? But think about this. This is what I'm thinking about lately. What do you do if, they, if you're at the counter and they say, all right, you're three pounds over. What do you have to do with that three pounds worth of stuff? You put it in your carry-on, which is going on the same airplane. Anyone else bothered by this? Like, how are we saving anything? I'm just moving it from a different bag. So if I put it higher up in the airplane, somehow the weight doesn't, I don't get this. And so maybe the rest of you are fine with this. I'm now, this is a conspiracy. I'm thinking about it and now it's bothering me. Uh, but anyways, what I love about traveling is you see things that are a little bit unusual. For example, we were staying in a number of hotel rooms. One of the hotel rooms we were in was very nice. Uh, had a bathroom kind of like center to the room. But what was interesting about this room was the, the walls of the bathroom were entirely made out of glass, which is unusual for a bathroom. So I took a photo standing in the bathroom, looking at the rest of my room. I want to show you this photo. This is inside the bathroom, looking at the rest of our room. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> If I was like on this trip with my wife, that could be cool, you know, no, no big deal. But I was not. I was sharing a room with the chair of our board of elders. So I'm thinking, I, I get in there day one and he, he wasn't there yet. I'm going, wow, we are really going to get to know each other this week. 
Um, I, and so I had that moment. I don't know if you've ever traveled. You're going, something's off here. Like, I, I, I can't figure this out. So I'm literally, I'm like, you know, like looking for like a curtain or something going. There is no way. I mean, I realize I'm not in America anymore. There's no way this is how they designed that room. And, and so I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to use this bathroom. Like, I, I just don't, you know, I'm trying to figure this out. And as I'm looking around, I find this little sign next to the sink. And it says, if you would like privacy, please press this button. I would like privacy. So I press the button and then this happens. Oh, right? I had the same reaction. I'm like, okay, that's amazing. So then I kept, you know, on, off, on, off, on, off. And it was like so cool. I didn't want to break it and lose my privacy, but uh, it was just so cool. And uh, these are things that you experience when you travel. So that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. I just felt like you should know how my week is going. So there you go. Uh, let's go into Philippians chapter two. I'm gonna share some stories of our trip uh, that do tie in to what we're talking about. Uh, that one was just for fun. Uh, but we're gonna go to Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse one, and we're gonna look at one of my absolute favorite passages of the Bible. Uh, this is so good. Uh, hopefully you've read this before, you've heard this before. I mean, this is straight poetry that we're reading here. This is incredibly good stuff. This is a joy to get to preach on a passage like this. All the Bible's good, but this is like really good, okay, is what I'm saying. Uh, so in Philippians chapter two, we're gonna pick up where we've uh, left off. We've spent the last two weeks in chapter one. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Here's what he says as it gets into chapter two. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, Paul is just throwing down on us. He's, he's issuing a challenge of, if you want to be the church... This is what it looks like. And, and, and he said the number of things that I find incredibly challenging for us today. In verse two, we just read, make my joy complete. If you've been with us so far in this series, uh, you know that this is a book about joy. This is Paul who has learned to find joy despite some hard circumstances. He's writing in prison, but he has found joy and he's trying to teach the church in Philippi how to have joy no matter what they are dealing with. And now Paul is going to up the ante, make my joy complete. Not just that I have a little bit of joy, but let's make it complete. Going, wow, that, that sounds really good. But I don't know about you. And I, I started to wonder, how, how are we doing with this? Like, are Christians known for, for like our joy? Like, oh, someone comes to you and goes, I knew you were a Christian. How'd you know? You're just so joyful. You know, all the time, you're just so joyful. That's how I knew you're a Christian. If you're like me, that's probably not the first word that comes to mind when you think about a Christian, right? And, and it's not just us. You find this everywhere. Now, I was uh, on this trip, and we were visiting a number of, of historical sites. And, and one of them um, is where, you know, it's called like the Mount of Beatitudes, where they think that in Matthew 5, Jesus gave some incredible teaching. And so I took a photo of where we were. This is looking out into the Sea of Galilee, uh, just this incredible spot. Right behind us is this uh, old, famous church that was planted there, uh, you know, to, to kind of mark the spot. So somewhere around here is where Jesus, you know, gave the, the Beatitudes. And again, you can read that in Matthew 5. 
I'm sitting in this spot, I'm going, this is so cool. Man, just, just to be here, to imagine Jesus teaching that. And, and so and I walked through the church there, just to, you know, I, I'd been there before. But, but what I was reminded of is the nuns that run that church are the angriest women I have ever met in my entire life. If you make any sound, if you sneeze, if you cough, if you laugh, I mean, if you whisper, these nuns are on you. And it's like no sound, no joy, nothing. Do not have this, in, you know, in this, in this church. And as so you go to this church and it is like, I mean, you are on your best behavior. You are quietly tiptoeing through the church because the nuns are watching. And, and so I, I went through the church. We got back out here. Our group's kind of sitting here. And we're just talking about Jesus and his ministry and, and just imagining what it would have been like for his disciples to be there. And, and at some point while we were all talking as a group, we just started laughing. You know, we just started thinking about, oh, how cool that would be. And, and as we're laughing, because again, so we're sitting here, the church is behind us. There is a group like over here and this priest comes running over and he shushes us. But the thing that struck me was his facial expression. He was so deeply offended by us. And I remember like, he like, and he gave us like this look and it's like, what? wow. And then he ran back off. And we all sit there were like, oh man, that was a look. And, and I just had this moment. I'm thinking about you guys. I'm thinking about Philippians and I'm going, yeah, we're not great at joy. I mean, we are not great at joy. So here are two different examples of Christians at an incredibly sacred spot and joy is not the emotion that I'm getting from this, you know? And, and so we're there, we're, we're trying to be joyful, trying to enjoy the scene, but it, it's just not what, what we're, we're getting. Now, this is not unique to this spot. Uh, in fact, we were, you know, going all around having very similar experience. Now, again, uh, if, you've, if you know me, you know, I have a little bit of a sense of humor and I, I like to laugh at things. So there was another church we were in and as we were uh, watching a procession in the middle of the church, I noticed something that I just found kind of cool. Um, I was standing behind Jesus. Now, I don't know how to tell you this, but I was looking in front of me and there was Jesus. And, and I just kind of thought it was amazing. So I took a photo of him. I don't know if you want to see this, but here's, here's a photo of Jesus. Okay. This guy, legit, no shoes. He's got a Jesus robe on, long hair, and he's got a beard. And I'm like, I'm in the Holy Land standing behind Jesus right now. So I'm, I think this is amazing. I'm like, guys, guys, look, it's Jesus. And they're going, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. So then we, our whole group is like, look, we're here, it's Jesus. And we just start kind of chuckling to ourselves. And in the midst of this, Jesus turns around and shooshes us. <laughs> have you ever been shushed by Jesus? <laughs> I have. And, and literally he turned around and turned back around. And I was like, that's it. No, I've got it now all the way from the top, you know, like no joy in this place, and I, I just, it was just funny to me, and I, I don't know why I saw it uniquely, maybe it's I'm thinking about this series, but I just thought, we, we've got some work to do here, church, you know, and, and that's not unique to them. We're not known for it here. You know, they didn't come back to states and go, oh, you Christians, man, you guys have figured out joy. No, we're not usually known for that, and yet Paul's talking about making our joy complete. So I think that joy should be a dominating quality of anyone who claims to follow after Jesus. If you have life-changing gospel news inside of you and it doesn't make you joyful, you're missing something. You're off on something. And so I think it's an incredible challenge for us to go, how are we doing 
when it comes to joy. It's a simple thing that Paul talks about. The very next verse we, we read, Paul says this, value others above yourselves. I'm going, man, this is tough, Paul. Okay, so make our joy complete. Yeah, we're not great on that. Value others above yourselves. How are we, how are we doing with that? Now, I don't know about you. I'm really good at valuing myself above others, like really good. Like I, I wake up in the morning and I am locked and loaded to value myself above others. And this just, you know, naturally comes out of me. I can be driving, I get up to a stop sign, there's two cars in front of me and without even thinking about it, my mind is analyzing the make and the model of each vehicle. Who's driving it? How much air is in their tire? You know, like I'm figuring out who's gonna get off the line quicker because I'm gonna follow that car and I'll move lanes and I don't even spend much time thinking about it, right? Or if I'm at an elevator and we're waiting on an elevator I'm standing there, I'm doing the math in my head. How many people are gathered around? How many of these people can we fit into this elevator? And I'm trying to think, how do I need to position myself to make sure I get in this elevator so I don't have to wait for a second trip? Or if I'm in the grocery store, you know, I'm already, I'm going to check out, I'm standing the lines, figuring out who looks like they know what they're doing, who's, you know, moving with a passion, you know? Is it just me, all right? Like, I just am really good at making sure I'm taken care of. And I bet you are as well. There's just something in us. We are naturally good at this. And yet Paul says, value others above yourself. If you're like me, you go, oh, that's a gut check. All right, are we going to do this? Are we really going to live differently? Are we going to be people that, that you can tell there's something different about you because of the way you act? Now, the best uh, tool that I have uh, come up with or I have found uh, to help me with this is a simple sentence. And I encourage you to write this sentence down. Uh, this is the easiest way I know how to remind myself to live this way. And it, you can use this moment by moment. And the, the expression is simply this. You are more important than me. I encourage you to write that down. This will change your life. If you can get this sentence in your head, you are more important than me. You wake up in the morning, and the first time you're tempted, you, I'm going to put myself above you. You just say to yourself, you are more important than me. If you're married, it begins with your spouse. You look at them, and you go, you are more important than me. If you've got kids, it's really tough. You and you and all you crazy people are more important than me, right? Whoever you're around, we, you go, you are more important than me. When you're driving and someone cuts you off and you get, you know, kick into that mode, you go, you are more important than me, you know, say it out loud. You're in the elevator, you do the math and you go, you and you and you, and you let them go in front of you and, and you begin to live this out moment by moment. And I'm a pastor and it should be easy for me and it's not, all right? And I wake up every day and my wife could tell you how selfish I am, but I have to commit to this and go, Jesus, you've gotta change my heart. You've gotta help me with this because I am not naturally wired for this and you are not either. And yet there is some power here in the gospel. If we will simply commit to go, you are more important than me. And church, here's what I believe. If we were to live with this sense, this was on our lips, we would literally change the world. I don't believe it's an exaggeration. It would change the world. Now, so often we go, I have to have perfect doctrine. I have to get my theology perfect. I have to memorize a bunch of scripture. That's all great. But if you could just live with this on your lips, I think the world would be a better place. I think people would be drawn in to what is it about Christians? Because there's something about when I'm with you, I feel amazing. What is that? It's the power of the gospel. And we can say it with a simple sentence. You are more important 
than me. Value others above yourself. Let's go back to chapter two and look at verse five. In your relationships with one another, Paul writes, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now here's where we go, whoa, 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 that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? He had rights to claim and he didn't use them? That sounds pretty stupid. Because as an American, we know what it means to have rights. We know what it means to claim your rights, to to have things that you are entitled to. This is part of our DNA as a culture. And we can go back to the Declaration of Independence, right? We go, hey, Thomas Jefferson and his friends, they helped us understand the rights that we have. And as an American, most of us, we know this intuitively. Let me read to you in case you're a little hazy on them. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I don't know what unalienable means, but it sounds awesome. We have huge rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have a right to be happy. I am entitled to it. It is owed to me. So if you come in the way of me having my right of happiness, I can oppose you. I can combat you. I can put myself above you because I am owed happiness. You begin to realize how this perspective can easily shape how we live out our faith. And in contrast, Jesus is going, no, 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 don't live like that. Don't, don't, don't claim all those rights because Jesus didn't follow that example. Jesus didn't do that. Now you might be thinking, okay, whoa, 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 pastor. You're getting a little tough on, on you know, what it means to have rights. I think these are a good thing. Well, if you play this out and you go, okay, let's, let's assume that we all just claimed every right we have. And we said, we have this right and this right and this right. So let's claim all of them. What would that look like? Would we be a better culture? Would we be a, a greater community if all of us were so focused on the things that are owed to us? One of the churches that we visit in the Holy Lands is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a cool name uh, for a church that is built on top of where it's believed that Jesus was crucified, where he was buried, and where he resurrected. As you can imagine, this is an incredibly sacred spot that people all around the world want to come over and see. And so now it's a little bit hard to use your imagination because there's this giant church built on top of uh, where this site was originally. Now, because it's such a holy site, if you've ever been there, you know that there's a number of Christian denominations that all have a piece of this church. They, They manage it together. So you have like the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian, the Roman Catholic, a number of churches that together each own a section of this church and of this, you know, this sacred spot. Now, because this has been so contested and they've had so many issues, a number of years ago, uh, the, the people basically said, we're gonna hit pause on this. That whatever it currently is, w- w- you have this, you have this, you have this, we're not changing any of it. So whatever you have right now to this point is all you have, you get nothing else, we're not changing anything, we're just gonna keep it the way it is. So literally for decades, this, this agreement has been in pause and nobody can change anything based on what they had at the moment that they hit pause. And you go, okay, what's the big deal? Well, let me show you how this plays out. When we walked in there, and I've been there a number of times now, I noticed that there's something I hadn't seen before. There's a giant ladder right when we walked into the middle of the church. This is the ladder. And so, I mean, this thing was massive. And so I walk up and I take this photo of it and I'm like, what, what is this ladder? It's like a service ladder, uh, but there's nobody on it. No one was using it. There's nobody around it. Just this massive ladder right when you walk in to the church. And so we asked our guide, hey, what's the deal with this ladder? 
And the guy kind of chuckled, and, and she said, oh, here's the deal. Uh, when they made the agreement to pause everything, um, one of the things that one of the churches had was that they had uh, a certain day of the year, or a couple days, however, that they had brought a ladder in to make some maintenance work, and that was part of the agreement. So now, every year at the same time, they bring this ladder in for no reason other than they can. <laughs> they bring a ladder in and set it up because they have a right to do so. They don't need the ladder. They're not gonna use the ladder, but they have a right to have that ladder there. And they don't wanna lose that right, so they set up the ladder year after year and nothing happens with it. Now, I don't know what your reaction to that. I'm sitting there going, this is not the best of us. This is not bringing out something great. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's so good when we all just focus on what we, our rights and what is entitled to us. No, you end up setting up ladders for no reason other than you can. And a lot of us, we live our life that way, right? I, I do things just because I can. And when you're focused on your rights, that makes sense. But if you want to follow the example of Jesus here, you realize that does not make sense. Now, if you know the story of Paul, there was a moment when Paul claimed his rights. And you might go, whoa, whoa, whoa. If, if Paul can claim his rights, how can he write this? Let me show you in, in Acts chapter 2, or 22, excuse me, Acts 22 in verse 24, Paul's about to get beaten and tortured for him living out his faith. And I want you to notice what he says in the midst of this. The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks he directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Paul's going, hey, hey uh, I have a right here. Is it, is it legal for you to do what you're about to do? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you gonna do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So, whoa, I had no idea, I'm sorry. Paul goes, I have a right I'm a Roman citizen. You cannot treat me the way you're treating me. And so you might be quick to go, see, see, Jeremy, Paul claimed his rights. And, and, and truthfully, we can relate with this, right? If you're about to get tortured and you knew you could pull out your American passport and that would get you out of it, I'm pretty sure all of us would be like, hey, 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 I'm an American citizen. You can't do this to me, right? That, that we'll go, oh, yeah, I would claim my right. But do you know that Paul was killed by Rome? And, and Paul never used this as a get out of jail free card. And Paul never used to say, I will not live out my faith if, if it means that, you know, I'm gonna be focused on my rights. See, Paul knew in this moment, yeah, he can claim his rights. There's nothing wrong with this. But Paul would keep putting himself in situations and Paul would lose his life to the government of Rome over this. And so what you realize is Paul's not hiding behind his rights and there's nothing wrong with claiming your right. But the moment that that becomes the focus, the moment that that is your focal point, hey, I'm gonna worry about what is owed to me, rather than living out a life looking like Jesus, then you have an issue. Now, Paul claimed he was a Roman citizen and he used that to get out of at least one situation. 
But here's what I want you to think about. Do you know that Jesus was not a Roman citizen? See, God, who, who is going to come and be one of us, could have done it any way he wanted. And he's not born a citizen. Now, when God chose the family that Jesus would be born into, he could have chose anybody. He could have chosen Roman citizens and had him born a Roman citizen. But Jesus wasn't born a Roman citizen. Jesus could not have used the argument that Paul used to get out of uh, being beaten and, and, and tortured. He, he couldn't have used that. He didn't have that argument to claim. And so you might go, well, the reason why Jesus can follow this example is he didn't have any rights. You know, he was the lowest of the low. That's why he did what he did. But notice Paul's argument in Philippians 2, verse 6. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Oh, yeah, that's a little better than Roman citizenship. Jesus has equality with God. And what Paul tells us is that Jesus didn't think that that was worth using to his advantage. Now, I don't know about you. If I had equality with God going for me, think I might use that to my advantage at least a little bit, right? I mean, that, I would throw that in a couple conversations from time to time. But Jesus didn't. So Jesus has every right in the world, a right that we will never have to claim this. And he doesn't use this for his own advantage. What does this show us about Jesus? About those of us who would say, we're going to follow after him. What does this mean for us when he had every right in the world and he did not use it? The theologian Walter Brueggemann says it like this. The actions of Jesus are a scandal for they violate propriety, reason, and good public order. When you realize Jesus had a get out of jail free card and didn't use it, you begin to go, what is going on here? I mean, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and legions of angels come down and, and do anything he wants, but he doesn't use any of that to his own advantage. He lays out his life for us. Go to verse seven, Paul explains why. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You want to know what God is like? Read those sentences over and over and over. What kind of a God are we following? Well, what is this nature of God? What is God really like? Read that over and over. That Jesus made himself nothing. They might wonder, what, what does that mean for, for God to make himself nothing? In Greek, it's the word kenosis. This is a powerful idea. The idea of kenosis is literally being full and emptying yourself out. So God begins with full, uh, he is complete, he's lacking nothing, but Jesus chooses to empty himself out. Picture the cross. When you have God incarnate, who has all power, all ability, and he is hanging from a tree and allowing his creation to take his life from him. This is kenosis. But it's not just, you know, the moment of the cross, all of a sudden we see God beginning to try kenosis. God has always been like this. In the very creation of the world, God doesn't make you and I because he's lonely. 
God's not having to fill some void. Like, oh, I'm so alone. And so if I make people, then I won't be so alone. God is filling out of the overflow of what he has. He's making room for us. He's going, you know what? I want you to experience what I have, not the other way around. One of my professors says it like this. God has the eternal disposition to make room for others. I love this idea that this is how God always works. His eternal disposition is to make room for you and I. And to do that, how how does a being who is complete make room for others? If he is 100% of everything, he empties himself and invites us in. It is the idea of kenosis. This is how God works. This is who God is. So you want to understand Jesus? What is Jesus? How is Jesus? Why does all of this understand kenosis? This is who Jesus is. This is how Jesus works. And this is why as a church, we are going to claim this. We're going to focus on this. This is why our mission statement is giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. What is that? It's kenosis. As I give myself for you, as I empty myself, you get to experience the good news. And we do that because we've experienced it through Jesus doing that. And we pass it on and we pass it on and we pass it on. And we get this example from Jesus. Our theme verse as a church is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where it explains how Jesus did this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Though he was complete, though he was full, though he was lacking nothing, yet for your sake, he became poor. He emptied himself. He chose kenosis for your sake so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the gospel, that as Jesus empties himself out, we experience the good news. And then we have the chance to keep that going, to pass that on to others. Now, the way it normally works in the world is that if I empty myself for you, I'm left with nothing. If I give you what I have, I have less. And so the way the world works, goes, don't do this. It's a bad investment. Take care of yourself. Make sure you claim your rights, claim your entitlements. Look out for number one, because if you don't, no one else will. But Jesus is inviting us to a different kingdom to a kingdom with rules that don't work the way the the world works. And he says, look, if you're going to do this for me, something else will happen. It's not gonna work the way you'd normally expect it. I would say it like this. When you empty yourself for others, Jesus fills the difference. When you decide, hey, you know what? I'm gonna take this seriously. I'm gonna choose kenosis because Jesus chose kenosis. I'm gonna empty myself out for the benefit of others. Whatever you have lost, whatever you have emptied of yourself, you invite Jesus to meet you there. And Jesus gets to restore. Jesus gets to fill you back up. And this is the cycle of the gospel. This is how we give ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And it continues to be good news for us because Jesus meets us there. This is why I often say this is an upside down kingdom. Why is it upside down? Because it does not work the way the world works. If you empty yourself in the world and you don't have Jesus, you're on your own. You, you, you are gonna be uh, without hope. You, you, you have less, you know, if you don't have Jesus, you have to look out for number one. 
You have to take care of yourself. You've got nothing else. But if you're going to say that you follow Jesus, you are inviting Jesus to take care of you. You're saying, look, I'm going to entrust myself to the creator of the universe. I don't need to worry about taking care of myself anymore. You empty yourself out, and Jesus meets you there over and over again. You know, I was looking out my window this week, and, and we have spring upon us. And you see the trees. And I was thinking, this is a beautiful picture of kenosis. That I have two trees in my front yard that lost all their leaves, right? It's, it's winter, they lose their leaves, they're barren, they have nothing. And yet this week, new life is forming. Green life, new, new branches, new leaves, new buds all over these trees. It's a beautiful picture of life coming after being emptied. And, and spring is an incredible metaphor for what we're reading about in, in, in this uh, passage here. That as we empty ourselves, Jesus meets us there. Jesus fills us with new life. Let's read the final few verses here. Verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know what this is going to mean, but I love to imagine every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. That no matter who you are or what you've done, that there will come a moment that everybody will recognize Jesus for who he is. And I love to imagine this. But I want you to consider this. The reason why Jesus changed the world, the reason why his followers gave their life for this and would go and, and, and spend the rest of their days proclaiming this message wasn't because of the teachings of Jesus. It was because of his resurrection. You see, they were eyewitnesses of an event. They watched Rome murder him. Then they watched God the Father raise him back to life. And they realized he has chosen to empty himself and in the process, he has gained everything. See, they had seen kenosis up close. They realized Jesus gave it all and it was ended up with more than ever. This is how kenosis works. And they were willing to commit their lives for it. And if we understand this, this is an invitation for you and I. If we say, yeah, we're, we're gonna be a Christian. I'm gonna be a Christ follower. To take this example and go, I will choose this lifestyle as well. I will choose kenosis in my life as well. And you may be going, well, I don't know, Jeremy, that sounds like a lot. It is a lot. And yet this is what it means to truly follow him. I think about one theologian, James Cohn. He says, the only real question for Christians is whether their actions are in harmony with their knowledge of God. Now that you know that Jesus works in kenosis, the question is, will your actions be consistent with it? Will you follow the same example and go, yeah, I saw him choose kenosis, so I'm going to choose it as well. Here's the question I'd like to close with. What would it look like for us to surrender our rights for the kingdom? As a church, as a community at all of our different locations, what would it look like for us to say, we choose kenosis? What would it look like if we all said, you are more important than me? Now, you might go, well, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'm ready to give my life for someone. Well, I don't think you begin there. I think it begins in small, moment by moment. 
When you begin to go, okay, Jesus, this is the moment. You have this moment, then you have the next moment, and then just a little bit at a time, you learn to experience, to practice kenosis. And I don't know what that will look like for you, but I encourage you this week, begin choosing kenosis. Begin to practice. You are more important than me. And there's a variety of ways you could do this. When you're walking into a building and you realize someone's walking at the same time as you, stop, hold the door, literally let them go first and think to yourself, you are more important than me. Simple reminder for you to go, okay, I, I can allow you to experience this rather than me having to force my way through. If you go to a, a drive-thru and you're paying for your meal and you realize there's a vehicle behind you, pay for their meal before you know how much it is, right? I, I, you are more important than me. Go downtown, look for expired parking meters, write them a little note, pay for it. You are more important than me. Listen to someone who needs someone to talk to and don't offer all of your solutions, just listen to them. Wake up in the morning and pray, God, show me someone that I can practice kenosis with today, that I can show them that they are more important than me. Use your wealth, use your power, use your influence for the benefit of those around you and practice what it looks like to put others in front of you. And if we were to practice this, this would be a different reality. I'll close with something that William McDonald said. He said, people who are willing to die for others do not generally quarrel with them. I think we have a lot of quarreling in our culture, even in our church. Tensions and disagreements and I, I don't know about this. You know, it's really hard. If you're gonna put other people in front of you, it's really hard to keep arguing with them. You are more important than me. You are more important than me. How would this world look differently if instead of us building ladders everywhere, we started practicing you are more important than me? See, Jesus didn't die to give you more rights. He died to invite you to experience the power of kenosis. And it begins one moment at a time. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are in awe of the fact that you surrendered equality with God for our benefit. That you did not claim what we would have claimed had we been in your shoes. And you laid down your life for us. You chose to empty yourself for us. And as the disciples watched that process, they also got to watch the Father raise you back to life fill you with all that you had emptied. And we see that this is the way it works. This is the gospel lived out. It is an invitation for each and every one of us to surrender our rights, to surrender what we are entitled to for the benefit of others. Jesus, may we believe this. May we practice this in small ways, in large ways, in each and every moment as we learn to say to those around us that you are more important than me. As we empty ourselves out for others, may you fill us, may you surprise us, may you amaze us with your presence, may you overflow it in our lives. And may something so simple completely change this world because we have seen you do it and we believe that it is the hope of the world. And so we ask that you give us a new imagination to see the world the way you see it, to practice living the way you have modeled it. And may you make our joy complete.
We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.